What's happening, Hardscapers? This is episode 201 of the How to Hardscape podcast, where we talk about how you can start and grow your hardscaping business. And on today's episode, we have returning guest, Greg Crabtree. If you don't know him, we had an interview with him two years ago now, so it's about time we had him back on the show. He wrote the book, Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits, which we talked in depth on that initial interview, as well as a new book or newer book, Simple Numbers. 2.0 both books i highly recommend you can go to howtohardscape.com books and check out all the books that i would personally recommend and those two are definitely on that list and in today's interview we get heavily into simple numbers 2.0 as well as touching briefly on the state of the market and where it's at right now but before we get into the interview we want to thank our sponsors gps track it if you need gps tracking in your hardscaping landscaping business check out gps track it at gps slash how to hardscape and if you need bookkeeping accounting cfo services cycle cpa is where you need to go and they have 200 dollars off if you mention how to hardscape when you sign up for them go to cyclecpa.com. we'll be talking more about these sponsors later in today's episode and without further ado let's get into our interview with greg crabtree Today, we're joined by Greg Crabtree. He is a speaker, entrepreneur, financial expert, and author of Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits, a topic that we actually covered uh, two years ago now when we had Greg on the show. So today, we're going to be talk- talking about his uh, his follow-up book, Simple Numbers 2.0. And this is a book that I've put uh, quite a bit of time into, Greg, and listening back and forth because I'm, I'm an audiobook listener. So uh, I've been through it multiple, multiple times, and there's still gold every time I, I listen to it so greg thank you so much for joining us here yeah thanks uh, great great uh happy to be here greg uh let's get started we we got to know a little bit about your background in the previous episode so uh, mm-hmm. i urge our listeners to go back listen to that but greg as our starting uh question that i have for you besides getting to know you a bit more is uh when is the new book coming or is there a new book planned or what could the topic of a new book be yeah there's there's not a new book in the works at the moment i mean there's you know there's there's certainly always ideas and things but uh but really at this particular juncture you know i would say that uh you know we've got a lot going uh kind of the new thing that we're going to start here uh and uh, i think the first episode will be the first of may is we're going to do a quarterly update of our assessment of, of the economy as, as we see it from the data. So we have our simple numbers, 100, you know, companies that is about a little over a billion dollars of revenue, all different industries, all different geographies throughout the U.S. And it, it's been an amazingly accurate picture you know, of, of where we think the direction of the economy is. And, and, and we, we teach it in a way that we don't talk about it as a benchmarking per se, you know, but really it's the idea of w- what direction are things going. And it's, and it's based on real data, not the government statistically smooth guess that didn't talk to any private companies, uh, government uh, produced economic data. Because the thing is, any privately held business listening to this podcast, my question is, what does the government government know about what you've done in the first quarter of 2023 much less all of 2022 they know nothing and and so how is it they produce all these economic statistics about businesses and the direction of, of gdp and, and and all those things and i get it that they're using t- statistical methods but um 
you know, I, I kind of hold hold sway of the idea that there's lot uh, there's there's lies, there are damn lies, and then there's statistics, and <laughs> so um, you know, it, it's one of those that we we really pushed for that, and we're going to do a quarterly you know webinar you know from Simple Numbers, so you can go to simplenumbers.me to sign up you know to get notified of the of the, of the webinar, and uh, we're going to try to look at that once a quarter. And because this is guidance we give our clients really every call of what we're seeing because we can kind of keep that model alive. But I think that's really where we're going to put our effort in of giving people, you know, more of that kind of guidance. I love that. I will de- definitely be signing up for that. And I'd venture to say that 100% of our audience is actually privately held companies. So uh, something that they can definitely uh, learn from there. And with that being said, uh, you service a lot, a wide variety of companies. So I want to ask you, uh, what are companies doing differently in preparation for, you know, what may be coming or what may already be here? Uh, words like recession are being thrown around all the time. Um, what, what's your insight into what companies you see are doing in this t- uh, this time period? Well, I mean, every everybody's got to look, you know, at their their circumstance and, and say, OK, what what is what is my outlook in my particular circumstance, both geography and marketplace, you know, looks like. I mean, right now, I would say that I've only got three types of clients that can't make money. If you're a residential real estate brokerage business with real, real estate agents working for you, mm, tough to impossible to make make a profit. You're just you're trimming costs, hanging on because there's not enough inventory for you to sell and there's there's not enough buyers given the interest rates you know that are at and so you know they're in a tough situation and and until you know we have some interest rate moderation uh it's probably going to be that way second is their second cousin um is the uh the the mortgage lenders or, or mortgage lending clients are same thing i mean they're hanging on um and and they've trimmed loan officers they've you know, um, you know, done everything possible, but I mean, but there's just not enough mortgages being turned. There's some, but not enough to be, you know, long-term sustainable. And so once again, they're hoping. And then the, their third cousin is the the title companies who do the titles for the mortgages and they're, they're in the same mode. And so these companies are, are sitting in tough situations where it is no fault of their own. The market has handed them an impossible to be profitable situation. You don't even think about growing. You just think about surviving. And this is where this is a perfect example of what we've touted in both books of this two months core capital target number being fully capitalized and having some staying power that, you know, if, that, you know, the, the clients that we have in those industries, we think they'll be the ones that will stay in the game the longest, uh, you know, but. But it, they're in a tough spot. Most everybody else is kind of in the situation, though, of where mm, nobody's taken off running. Uh, and 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 so, you know, kind of an early glimpse of, of our economic stuff I'll give to your group is that, you know, we look at rolling three revenues of this billion dollar data group. And we've seen eight months of consecutive rolling three decline, which has not ever happened before in the time frame that we've looked at it. So we think clearly we are actually operating, you know, in a recession because these are inflated. Numbers. These are revenue dollars. So guess what? They're inflated as well over the previous year. And so we, we think, you know, that, you know, that that's declining and people are still raising prices because their costs are going up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so there's definitely a slowness. Um, you know, this happening. And so 
to a certain degree, the overall marketplace is sitting back. The big companies are sitting back. Everybody's trying to get a, a feel of where are things going and, and what's going to happen. The, the bigger issue, though, is, you know, we still are stuck in this population demographics issue of we don't have enough labor. Uh, certainly, your industry, you know, picks up some labor uh, that is uh, unskilled and you can get somebody to do something to be a helper, certainly the skilled parts of what you do, those people are, I guarantee you're still hard to find. What's been interesting in all of this, as much as I said, the real estate agents, the mortgage lenders and the title companies are, are struggling. All of our builder clients are doing okay. Now they're the, the heat is off of their backlog, but they're not struggling to find to be fully busy they, they are struggling in some pricing areas of making sure that they, they bill for projects. You've had uh, spec home builders or, or people that used to build specs have now gone to just contracted building to make guaranteed profitability off of the service fee of a cost plus arrangement. And that's just a change from taking one risk to another. Um, you know, but but they're they're kind of, you know, uh, you know, honing into that piece. But there's enough activity in most markets, you know, that, um, you know, these people are, are kind of staying busy. Uh, and so as long as you're not kind of in the urban area downtown, one of our clients pulls building permits facilitation, you know, in all the major cities. And, you know, certainly the, the permits are down, but there's still activity. You know, it's just different types of activity. Uh, and, and so this is kind of a kind where I would say the number one play that elevates to the top right now is called get profitable with what you got. And so know what you got, know what you can plan on, have a decent, you know, backlog, you know, of, of, of projects in mind. But I've got to be very, very mindful of, of profitability and I'm, I'm more thinking about profitability and capitalization and, and making sure that I've got plenty of cash in my business if I get a bump in the road. Uh, but growth is, is a secondary issue, and I'm not willing to take on that next crew or expand into the next city, given a lot of the clouds that are on the horizon. Now, there's always a, a you know somebody out there that looks at that and says, well, gee, that's a, that, that's a green light opportunity for me. And it's like, hey, go for it. Just understand the risk you're taking. But understand this too, though, was we with a birth rate of 1.6 workers and a, a declining total workforce, you know, of, of people available working, we have a damaged economic engine relative to the past 40 years. I mean, we've had increasing, you know, workforce and, and money being spent. And I just pose the challenge to everybody. Just think about basic economics. How do you have an expanding economy if I have a shrinking workforce? And I know about AI and I know about automation, but just tell me where the big gains are. And oh, by the way, you know, AI doesn't exactly help economic output considering it takes people's jobs if it actually comes to play. Hadn't yet. I haven't seen it take over anybody's job. It, it, it's created some jobs for people to have to learn how to play with it. You know, but, you know, these are things that, you know, if you look at kind of the population demographics of the U.S., the uh, Canada, you know, Australia, I, I just did a two-week uh, speaking tour in Australia and New Zealand. They got the same challenges we do. I mean, it's almost exact. Inflation is exactly the same. Lack of labor is exactly the same. Um, you know, I mean, I think we're kind of in a stuck mode. Uh, and, uh, you know, but 
for business, that's not, if you're a great operator and, and you take care of business, you know, it, I've, I've kind of defined the current economy is I, I refer to this as the street fight economy. You're you, to grow. You're going to have to go hard win every, every job you do and take it away from somebody else. You know, in I, from 2009 to 2019, that was the, the participation trophy economy. You know, the, everything was going. You could be a bad contractor in your industry and still have business because you were breathing and available. And and you know, and and it's like which which environment would you rather be if you're really good at what you do? And my my sense is probably your listeners are the best people at what they do. You're going to now get rewarded for being the best because if you're not a good operator, if you're if you don't deliver you know, good in a, in a more balanced, you know, uh, demand and supply marketplace, you know, you get spit out pretty quickly. I, I completely agree with that. And uh, with that being said, when it comes to say you're maybe over leveraged coming into a time period where work starts to dry up, um, what, where does it make sense to start looking to cut expenses? Because I would assume that during a time period where work starts to dry up, that's when things like marketing becomes a little bit more expensive right. to get more leads into the door, as well as the cost per lead goes up. So marketing would uh, hypothetically go up. So then where do we cut? Where do we start to look to, to trim the fat in our business to account for a downturn as well as that increase in spend for marketing? Well, this is not the popular answer, but it's the answer that is all throughout both of my books. And the first place you look is you, the owner, is take as much pressure off the business from your personal consumption and start with distributions. I mean, obviously, you got to distribute the tax coverage of, of the profitability you know, for escorts and LLCs, but you've got to go on a dividend diet and, and you, you just, you just need to take less pressure off of the business as, as much as you can and start there. And once you do there, then you do the second thing. You look at the business and say, you know, do we have any discretionary stuff? And it's like, it's more so I like the idea of you're not combing through the P&L and saying what you can do without. Just every time you have a moment of truth of I'm paying a bill or making a choice, just ask yourself the value question. Does this add value or not? And if, if it's murky, well, just try doing without it for a while and see if you miss it. I mean, you can always you know add it back later. There's not a ton of dollars, though, to save in those. I mean, you as the owner taking less demand off the business, that's big. That, that, that's, a, that's a big lever. But really, at the end of the day, it is more about understanding what your margin production target is for the cost that you've committed to. Because everybody today, for the most part, is running what we call a committed labor model. So it means that of your employees, not your contractors, but of your employees, you know, here on, you know, this is the first part of April, you know, today with the rest of the month in front of you, how much you're going to spend in labor. It's not a mystery. And so therefore, you know, guess what? You know, I've talked about the magic, you know, overall labor efficiency ratio. I don't care if it's direct labor or management labor. At the end of the day, I got to go get $2 of gross margin for every dollar of labor that I spend. And in that I've, I've really been pounding that simplistic measure that works for 90% of the businesses. So when, when you take revenue minus the cost of goods, which are the materials and subcontractors that you spend, get that gross margin dollar left over. I guarantee you, everybody listening to this, this podcast, you're, you know, you got one number to pay attention to. It's called two. Everybody got that? Repeat after me. The number is two. 
Why is it two? I need $2 of gross margin for every dollar of labor that I spend, regardless of whether it's the CEO or somebody that, that's sweeping the floor. Doesn't matter. And, and so if you know that number on the first day of the month, you got four weeks to do something about it. And every week you got to get something across the finish line. And let's face it, we know in the contracting world, you know, it's it, it's a it's a world of excuses. You know, I didn't get the materials. Oh, the customer wanted a delay. Uh, I get it, but you know, we do have backlog, and for every delay is an opportunity to reach into the future and pull something into the present to cover it. And 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 the one lasting thing that COVID left us with was. Hey, we could go home for two weeks on lockdown and come back and the world didn't end. Yeah, but, you know, you can't live like that. And and one of the, the massive drops in labor productivity over the last three years is people don't finish. They don't play through the whistle every day. And everything that you don't get done today blocks tomorrow. And everything you don't get done this week blocks next week. And everything you don't get done next week blocks next month. And it adds up. And, and so, you know, what we teach our contractors is really, you've got to be really on point. And I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, my, my contractors right now in, in still in a tough market are very profitable of the ones that they stay on schedule. And if, if a schedule changes that they, they can't control, they bring the next thing in and it, it's not called a day off. It's called, okay, ship projects and, and you move. And and the ones that do that, I mean, those are the guys that win the game. You did mention there uh, cutting personal spending. So this is probably not the time of period where I would go out, buy a Lambo and finance it for 150 months at 6% interest, correct? That's right. That's correct. That is correct. <laughs> okay. I yeah. just had to get that out of the way there. Well, you know, I and, and like I said, I mean, you know, we, we've got clients that just can't help themselves. And it's like, well, you know, but you're putting the pressure. I mean, the, the you know, these are you know, personal discretionary things that, you know, can you do without it? Can you take some pressure off of, of the business? Uh, because you're going to have pressure. You're going to have delays. You're going to, you, there's times you're profitable, but the cash in there, you know, and, um, and, and really, I mean, uh, you know, especially, you know, some of the contractors that are really good at it, the cash can be there because they collected the money up front. And he, here's here's the trap. Here's the cash flow trap for a contractor. You're really good at collecting the money up front. And then the project delays. Well, when the project delays, you're not creating profitability, but I have cash. Oh, I feel good about the cash. I can still take my distribution this month. What you just did is take you took a distribution of your customer's deposit. And that that wasn't your cash. You and I went through this with a contractor right before this call, and I showed them when we took their revenue, you know, minus their AR net of their customer deposits, they actually had negative cash. And they're sitting there thinking they have eight hundred thousand in cash. No, they don't. They have minus five hundred thousand in cash. And it's like, and these folks have a propensity to sometimes need a, a distribution diet. And it's like, you've got to bring that to their forefront, you know, when, when you're looking at it, because, you know, you, you got to understand that cash, just because you have cash in your bank account, it doesn't mean it's yours. And great that you collected it up front. I mean, that's the best standard, but just understand who's, whose cash that is. I want to interrupt this episode to talk to you about GPS Track It. When it comes to running a landscaping business, the question isn't what do you do, but what don't you do? If it's not a customer that needs your attention, it's one of your drivers or one of your vehicles. 
but you already know that GPS Track It exists to help you know more than what you already know, like the most efficient routes to maximize your service potential, like whether or not your vehicles and crews are where they're supposed to be like how to save unnecessary fuel costs and other costs. And we're going to be covering the benefits of GPS tracking in the future on this podcast. So we're going to continue with the benefits of GPS tracking, but we'll let our fleet advisors give you the full picture. Call 866-693-1291 or go to gpstrackit.com slash how to hardscape. Once again, that's 866-693-1291 or go to gpstrackit.com slash how to hardscape. Link will be in the show notes. You've touched on a lot of different things that I've got questions about. So uh, you're going to have to bear with me for the yep. remainder of this interview because we'll likely be bouncing around all over the place. My mind doesn't necessarily work linearly. So um, causation versus correlation of spending right. uh, on growth. Right. Um, you mentioned in Simple Numbers 2.0, did you grow because of your spending or in spite of it? Can you expand on this for us, Greg, here, the causation versus correlation of spending on growth? Well, I mean, and, and I think marketing and and additional labor are, are two key culprits in that. So in the second book, I wrote a chapter called Launch Capital. And this is really how everybody really grows. You don't go invest in uh, a plant or equipment or and sometimes you do but most of the time to grow you're trying you're spending an expense in the form of either marketing and or labor that's not fully utilized and i'm spending it in the present period to get to someplace in the future so i've intentionally reduced the current period's profit to get to a better place at some point which is fine i mean that's how 90 percent of businesses actually grow it's not by building a new factory. And so that's good, but you got to have an accountability mechanism. And how much did I spend? And I want to strip out that number from normalized operations because I want to know if I had not chosen to spend money on marketing for work that I don't have in hand, would I have still been profitable? And in most cases, you probably would have been. Uh, but you know, it depends on do I have kind of momentum kind of a growth business or do I have to go spend money in marketing to win every next new project, every next new customer? Most people in your industry gets a reasonable flow of, of you know, reputation, leads and, and those kind of things. And it's a challenge. I mean, I, I, I get it. All the marketing people, you know, talk about, you know, the funnel and let's do lifetime value of the customer and blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, and, and don't get me started on a lifetime value of the customer. I think it's one of the most stupid calculations anybody ever does. I mean, you can calculate it all you want to. I'm not paying attention to it, you know, because it, it, it's mostly made up calculations. And, and unless you just got a finite model. It is, it is so rare that you can actually do a, a realistic calculation. It's, it's save it for the classroom, not the real world. What's real is of a dollar spent, did I produce contribution margin? And I've had the most success getting people to understand effectiveness of marketing spend from an economic standpoint of saying, look at the last 12 months of, of contribution margin. What's the last 12 months of marketing spend? And I look at contribution margin as the output, it's the numerator, marketing spend is the denominator. And I just trend that over time, rolling 12, rolling 12, rolling 12 by month and see, am I getting more signal? Am I getting less signal? And then if I'm getting less signal, 
I always want to ask, why do I think that's happening? And, you know, and you got to piece some things together. Let's face it, in the world of marketing, most of the time, you know, a person doesn't come to you from a singular interaction. It's usually multiple. You know, it's a reputation. It's I, I looked at your website. I thought about it. I talked to some other people. And at the end of the day, I just had to make a decision. And, and, and sometimes it's they called you and you're the first one to call back. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and so to a certain degree, you know, you spend all this money on marketing, but you really don't know what was the piece that worked. You have to use some some staring into the mist intuition, but you can always look at the effectiveness of that number. And, and so one of those things of correlation versus causation, you, you know, you're doing I'm doing a correlation calculation of contribution margin to marketing spend. I admit it, but I don't think you can actually come up with a causation. Uh, uh, you, you have to kind of get a sense of it you know, because sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. But, but I think the other thing is people have a tendency to just spend money, you know, because, oh, I'm supposed to. And, and so that's kind of the deal of, you know, everybody asks me, well, how much should I spend on marketing? Is it, well, every dollar that's effective. I mean, I, who, who, who in their right mind will put a cap on it if it's working and you can deliver to every lead that comes in? You keep spending, you keep, you feed, you feed the hand. What's that's almost never the problem. <laughs> the problem is, is you keep feeding the losing hand and you're not doing anything about it. I mean, you're not evaluating, you know, you, you've got a, you know, your, your channel's not working, your message isn't working, you know, you're not consistent in your follow through. I mean, we, we got a client that actually sets up phone call leads, you know, for people and his biggest problem that he tells us that it, of the customers he works with is people don't show up from the company that paid him to set up the call. And it's like, they don't follow up and it's like, what's going on with that? And, and, and so you, you see these failures, you know, all the time. And, and, and so the, the real issue is stop spending and stop wasting good powder on stuff that really isn't effective. And you got to step back and say, you know, it, it's just like the classic A-B test. I mean, the best thing in marketing is to any extent that you can do an A-B test of a message, a channel or those things, that, that's where the best of the best make it work. Uh, that, that we watch and, and I, and I, I just get out of the best seat in the house to just watch people who are good at it and watch people who fail at it. And, you know, the people that are good at it, they test and then they, they feed the hand and, and they don't jump in, they feed the hand gradually. And, and those are the ones that seem to have, have the best, best outcomes. Uh, excellently explained there. And you just, uh, you touched on lifetime value there, uh, that metric you don't like. And that kind of made me uh, think about in your book, talking about recurring revenue models. <laughs> and uh, I've been for years now, just trying to wrap my brain around how a recurring revenue revenue model could be introduced to, say, a backyard outdoor living space, patio, things like that. Uh, and I just haven't come to any conclusion with that. And it brings me back to your book where you say introducing a recurring and I, I might be uh, paraphrasing this yep. wrong but introducing a recurring revenue model to a business that can't really uh, deliver on it can really hurt the business in a sense that a client uh, pays this recurring expense whether that's monthly or yearly and they're not seeing right. anything 
for it. Uh, is this something that you would you would kind of wean people away from if they're trying to pursue it in the hardscape industry? Yeah, I would I would say so. I mean, I, I I'm not familiar with anybody who's come up with you know that that type of a model. I mean, I can think of you know like you know I pay a pool service to come every two weeks and service my pool during the the period that it's open, and I pay them to open the pool and I pay them to close the pool and and winterize it. Um, you know, and that, that one's kind of recurring, but in terms of hardscape, you know, a, a lot of it kind of depends on, on, um, you know, is there anything to maintain? I mean, are you in a climate that, you know, there's, you know, mold or slime that develops over rock surfaces that, you know, you can go in and do periodic pressure washing, you know, or those kind of things. And, and so, you know, but there again, you know, can you predict it in, in, and plan of, you know, when that's going to be, or do you just have a really good, you know, technique of, I've got a group of customers who always know that we're the resource to call. And once again, in my low cost effective marketing, remind people that, Hey, you know, if you're, uh, you know, if you need your, your, you know, you know, uh, rock structures, uh, pressure washed or, uh, you need it cleaned or, you know, uh, you know, those certain seasons you can have leaves and, you know, maybe, you know, but, but it, it depends on just, you know, kind of what you get into, mm-hmm. but this is really kind of where, what, what you've seen though, is it's almost introducing hardscape maintenance into kind of the general home services market that you've seen, you know, the, the company that I recently hired that, that now does my, you know, fertilizer and weed control for my yard because I just didn't get get to it when I wanted to, but I didn't give them the mowing yet because I like mowing my grass. Um, you know, but but at some point, you know, do you have them do that? Do you have them do the flower beds? Do you have them do the? You know, they they now offer pest control. Uh, you know, and 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 so those companies start to eat into some of that that stuff and say, do you want to go to five different companies? You know, to get each of these services or you know, they're good enough at all of them. I'll just go to one company and, and buy, you know, I can turn them on and turn them off, you know, as I need certain types of things. And so more of that, you know, that recurring service model is more built around once you have that, you have multiple things to sell to that customer, then you're more likely to create that recurring revenue model because you can kind of predict services and you just have to, the, the key is, what's part of the monthly service or every monthly, quarterly, ever how you bill it. And then what isn't a, you know, a, a change order and don't get sucked into providing services, you know, in excess of, of what that scope was. I just want to take a break from today's episode to talk about our sponsor, Cycle CPA. You may have a CRM or project management software in place, but what data are you using to ensure your estimating is accurate? Having a proper accounting setup and accurate bookkeeping done is key to understanding overhead expenses and other costs that must be recouped in your estimates. Cycle CPA is a remote bookkeeping and CFO firm that helps to connect the dots from the financial reports to the hardscape and landscape data needed in order to reach high profits. They provide landscape and hardscape industry benchmarking, job costing financials by service line, advisory meetings, and much more. Cycle CPA's team of accountants are specialized within the hardscape and landscape industry, and you can visit them at cyclecpa.com and for $200 off, mention the How to Hardscape podcast. 
Now back to our episode. So when it comes to building a business to sell, uh, a recurring revenue model looks great to an outside investor to, to purchase mm-hmm. in on. Um, without being able to do that in the, uh, at least in my, my uh, mind, in the hardscape industry, does it look good on an outside investor if we have this database of clients that we've done work for and we reach out to them a year in and year out to see if they want maintenance done uh, rather than having a recurring model, but being able to show that outside investor that, hey, we have a client book and each time we read out, reach out to this these clients that we've done work for, we're getting these maintenance contracts to be able to go back and, uh, in a sense, improve that lifetime value of a client. But uh, does that look good to an outside investor when they're looking at, at buying a company? And I, I think you would need to have, you know, at least yearly economic, you know, transactions, you know, from a customer to be considered a sticky customer and a recurring customer. And so I, I can have a recurring re- customer versus a recurring revenue model. And I get a little more of a premium, you know, from that as well. Um, you know, and, and the fact that, um, you know, there's also proof that people that you have a relationship with that you do a, a project for that my, my favorite term is enhancements, you know, when you can do those enhancements and do them quite profitably, you know, I mean, that just becomes a really high value marketing source, you know, to, to be able to tap into. And, and we're seeing those companies get, you know, some premiums over, you know, kind of four to five times EBITDA is kind of the neutral profit, uh, neutral value multiplier number, um, you know, and, and so anything above a five, you know, the market is showing aggression of, hey, we want to acquire these businesses and fold them into kind of their family of companies, you know, in, in, in that regard. I think from from just being the project and being, you know, somewhat tied, you know, to the volatility of the real estate market, uh, the business value side, not to say that, you know, it, it, you can always ask, you know, but but you, you, probably if you're getting a seven, you know, multiplier of EBITDA, you know, you're you're picking up a few points of, of, of premium value and, and doing pretty well. I, I think the idea is I would just always see this as what we call a, a harvest business. So the thing I would tell a hardscaper is, hey, if you get a premium, that's great structure you know make your business you're helping your business for yourself even if you hold it to do all the things to make it more valuable to somebody else so you're you're, it's not costing anything you're actually making it better but whether or not you get a premium that is a depending on a lot of market forces at the time that you're in the market but otherwise you want to be a harvest business to where i'm harvesting the after-tax profits of the business to then build wealth external to the business and try to consume as little to none of you know pay your that's why i want you to pay yourself a market wage it's even on the high side live off of that market-based salary and then take those profits and invest in whatever you like to invest in, whether it's real estate, the stock market, uh, you know, that, that's up to you. But you need to be building wealth from the earning stream of this business because that's really where the people in this industry long term create the wealth is from the profit stream of this business to go invest in other things. And that's, that's the key to get, get in your head. And if you, if you get a premium sale, I mean, that's just a bonus. Awesome. That makes total sense there. Um, what is ROIC and how, um, yeah, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. What is ROIC? Yeah. How does that so, uh, work? 
return on invested capital, uh, which is a, a clean version of, of equity in essence. You know, you can't just take equity of your balance sheet as exists because you guys are really crummy accountants and, and your accountants don't have you keep your balance sheet as clean as it should be. And so you've got extraneous assets that aren't related to the production of income on your balance sheet probably uh, as in like accounts receivable shareholder do do from related party, you know, those kind of things. And you've got some liabilities potentially that has nothing to do with the business where you owe money to, to something that you took out of the business, but it's not related to the production of the business. And so invested capital is a clean balance sheet structure of saying, what are the necessary assets, accounts receivable, inventory, you know, current uh, other current assets like prepaid expenses, uh, your fixed assets, uh, uh, net of book value, true book value, not tax depreciation, um, minus accounts payable uh, for trade vendors um, and um, and maybe deferred revenue, you know, crude expenses and those things. So that's the true equity at play. Now, the one adjustment that we do is for the cash number. We make sure that you got two months of cash, whether you actually have it in the business or not. So if your if your cash number is a hundred thousand and your uh, proper number is two hundred thousand, we're going to add a hundred thousand dollars of cash to your invested capital calculation balance because I don't want you calculating a an inflated return because you're leveraging your business to get it. I want an unlevered return on invested capital. And, and so the idea is it's giving you, I've always searched for this. And then finally, I, I, I get to chair a program for the entrepreneurs organization at Horton Business School that I get to hang out with like legitimate professors. And, and this was, you know, the first year, this was where they were teaching this idea. And, and it really just kind of fascinated me. And the more I researched it, I really found it to be an incredibly powerful you know, tool because it allows us today to set a profit target for any business in any developed country in any industry. And so our minimum acceptable return on invested capital is 50%. Um, and, and so the idea being, if you've got $500,000 of invested capital, your minimum profit target should be 250,000. You know, feel free to make more than that. But if you're not making 250, we're questioning your sanity or your business acumen of why aren't you there? Because th this isn't acceptable. And I, I'm not saying we've we, we, you know, looked at a thousand plus businesses under this methodology, and I've not seen one yet that couldn't get the 50 percent return if run properly. Uh, and, and so it becomes the standard that says this is why. Now, the other thing is I win the argument of saying this is why you should protect your business, because it is the highest returning asset you'll ever own. When it's run correctly, the minimum return is 50. The average is 75 because the, the return on invested capital of our 100-company model is typically around 75% return. Uh, and some industries can actually get up over 100% because they don't carry receivables. They don't have any equipment at play. So those are really low capital, high profit uh, leverage you know, kind of businesses. And, and so if you're one of those, then you're, you're – you don't need cash to grow. You just need to be good at executing what you're doing. Um, and, and, and so you can, 
you can kind of get away with it, you know, in, in those guards. And in y'all's industry, you'd be kind of the typical 75%, you know, a, a hardscaper should be able to, to, if they're run profitably, you're going to carry a little bit of receivables, but as long as you don't get strung out, you know, by your customers and you get paid timely, you get some trade support from your vendors, you're going to be that, that, you know, uh, you know, okay is at 50 but really if you're if you're really hitting all your marks you should be at a 75 percent you know profitable or return on invested capital i knew we would run out of time before i ran out of questions here uh greg but i do have uh, a couple more to speed through here sure. um what does it mean to connect functional assets with respective liabilities and calculating the net between those and how does this differ from the traditional balance sheet well that gets into a concept we call trade capital and so if you think of working capital is current assets minus current liabilities and that's on that's on the balance sheet that sheet that you guys never look at and so it, it's an important sheet and there's this is the reason why so if i look at my accounts receivable plus inventory plus work in progress minus accounts payable minus accrued expenses not not cash or not debt. Now those are the active trade assets and liabilities. And you can look at them individually, but I kept looking for what is it that gets people to actually manage these better. And when we net them against each other, you create a net trade capital number. And if I take that trade capital as a percentage of the last 12 months revenue, it, so let's say, you know, if you're at $10 million of revenue and your trade capital is a million. So you got a 10% trade capital. Well, if my profit is at 15%, it is a really, really easy, quick calculation to say, if I grow another million dollars, I'm positive by 5% cash flow. I'm producing 15% profit. I've got to invest 10% of new revenue growth into more of that trade capital because it is going to expand relative to the size of my business. And, and so I'm cash flow positive. But what if it's the other way? What if it's a million five of trade capital and I'm only at 10% profit. Well, that means that for every every new dollar of, of, of revenue growth, I'm actually negative cash flow, and I've got to wait to catch up, or I've got to put put my own cash in to fund it or borrow the money to do it. And, and so as we've shown that number to people, the idea is you're trying to get your trade capital percentage down and your profit up. Well, as they see it, and we report month to month to month on those numbers, it's amazing. I mean, they actually started doing something about it. So they, they've learned to, you know, sometimes I can affect my receivables. Sometimes I can affect my payables. Sometimes I can get deposits from my customers. Sometimes I can stop, you know, I can improve work in progress to where, you know, I'm getting things completed and build more, more quickly. Uh, or sometimes I just get my profit up to cover it. And, and it's what we call the cash power ratio. So as whenever uh, profit is higher than trade capital percentage to revenue, I'm in the cash flow free growth zone. So grow as much as you want because I don't need to borrow anybody's money to do it. And if I'm in the cash negative part where my trade capital is above my profit, I'm in the, the, the burn cash to grow mode. And so am I going to do that from debt? Am I going to do it from kicking my own money in? Or am I going to use time? Well, how do I use time? Well, time is what we call the base camp method, where I grow until I run out of cash and, and debt resources. I pause growth, forcibly pause it, pause it, and let the cash catch up. Because if I'm profitable, it will the cash will eventually catch up, depending on what your cash cycle days are. And, and then I 
that once I get caught up, my debt's paid off, I have some cash, then I turn on the growth again and I grow to the next level until I run out of cash again. And then I pause and then let the cash catch up. Well, it's really hard to turn on growth off and on, but it can be done if that is your only choice. But I suggest that people get their trade capital percentage down and get their profit up. And then this problem goes away and you'll never have to talk to your banker ever again. And uh, final question here. Uh, why do you prefer forecasting over budgeting? Well, budgeting is a license to spend and forecasting is a license to make money. So, you know, the thing is, if you give somebody a budget, they're, they're spend, it's a spend mindset. And it's like, no, 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 no. I want you to not spend a dollar if we can avoid spending it. And I want to spend every dollar that I can that I know will give me a high probability of positive return of a dollar greater than the dollar I spent. And, and so all I'm doing is restricting growth and profitability by budgeting in, in most of those cases. And, you know, I mean, I get it. I mean, you've got some little isolated buckets of money that, that there's no revenue associated with it. And the person managing it needs some guidance use it as sparingly and as limited as possible. But when you're talking about the overall company, never, ever, ever talk about it as a budget. It is a forecast. And I'm trying to say, okay, here's what has happened. Here's the actuals. Here is where we're going. And so I just refer you to the great game of business that Jack Stack wrote is the original book. Any of these others are great as well, but th these guys reforecast every week you know, of their business. I, I'm just trying to get you to reforecast every month, you know, for at, le at least hard forecast it for the next three to four months and learn that process. And this is forecasting at the top level. Don't get down in the weeds in the little individual accounts. Use our kind of rolled up version, you know, of our PL. And it's an easy, simplistic forecasting structure, you know, that once you once you force that habit and you do it several months in a row, you'll start to see the the power of it. Greg, uh, thank you so much for your time. I would love to have you back on the show uh, again, yep. once again Anytime. in the future. I've still got lots of questions from the <laughs> 2.0 book and then lots of questions beyond that as well. Greg, where can our audience go find out more about you? Where can they find uh, Simple Numbers, Simple Numbers 2.0? Uh, anything else that you want to leave them with there? Yeah, so the, the books uh, are in uh, both hardback and uh, audio uh, versions and Kindle. So you can go to their easiest available on amazon.com if you want to buy them in bulk you know just contact us directly uh I, we can at best be reached at simplenumbers.me. uh so our simple numbers we're uh, uh we're a, a business unit of car rigs and ingram uh so our consulting practice is, is part of what they call their portfolio companies and, and so but simplenumbers.me will get you to our website and you know and so you know, if, if you need help doing it uh, we actually give our prices for the the consulting services that we do to help companies apply the things when they need some somebody to help them guide them through it uh ha happy when people can do it on their own but you know our, there's always people that need help uh and then uh, also you can sign up for that uh our, our webinars we have other things other than our quarterly economic forecast but but we're going to have some some good discussion on this uh, uh looking at our simple numbers 100 company model because i think it's really starting to show us some really good insight of the true direction of the economy and those of us who are ready for the street fight and ready to, to land some blows, hey, you, you want to be ready for that information. And you want to you want to be the one laying, landing the punches, not getting punched. Excellent. All the links will be in the show notes for our audience listening. And Greg, thank you so much for your time today. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. If you're looking for Greg Crabtree's books, go to howtoheartscape.com slash books. Check out Simple Numbers Straight Talk. 
big profits first and then check out simple numbers 2.0 and once again big thank you to our sponsors cycle cpa if you need a bookkeeping accounting cfo services reach out to cycle cpa at cyclecpa.com let them know how to hardscape sent you for $200 off their services there. And thank you to our new sponsor, GPS Track It. If you need GPS tracking for your hardscaping landscaping business, check them out at gpstrackit.com slash how to hardscape. And we look forward to meeting with you next week on the How to Hardscape podcast.